1: no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
3: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 27th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about how La La Land lost out on Best Picture. In a bizarre envelope-related screw-up, and what the sports-related parallels for such a thing might be. Did La La Land in fact blow a 3-1 lead in the NBA finals? We will discuss. We'll also talk about a case of alleged cyberbullying in Pro Sports and whether Hall of Famer and TNT broadcaster Shaquille O'Neal has gone too far in mocking Golden State Warrior Center JaVale McGee for his on court mistakes. And Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captain's Podcast. Will also join us to explain why the most surprising story in sports history, human history, the history of the universe, the shocking Premier League championship of underdog soccer club Leicester City, has turned sour this season, with Leicester firing its manager, Claudio Ranieri. Joining me in Washington, D.C., is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Joining us from New York is Mike Pesca the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. Hello.
4: How are you? Will regular folks be traipsed in to stare at Stefan and I, I hope?
3: (laughs) (laughs) What was your uh, opinion on that bit? Opinion was sharply divided. Sharply divided, the bit opinion. I was...
4: (laughs) there was so much buildup that i was dreading it yeah Uh, i forgot i forgot there was like some magic oh um on one of the tonys there was like some magic trick uh that neil patrick harris did and i whiffed i had the whiff of that and then when it happened i thought just in terms of execution and humor it was great um i know there was a lot of backlash but the backlash seemed to be that they were poking fun at regular people i thought that the not not the fault of the regular people, but I thought that the celebrities in the first two rows were made to seem like animals at the zoo. And what if Meryl Streep didn't want to be kissed by 12 people off a tour bus? Oh, she got it. So I thought it was really <laughs> – I, I actually thought it was really funny. And I thought it's all because Jimmy Kimmel actually did a great job and has a good touch with kind of the common regular person segment.
0: cuz he was making fun I, of people's names. It
3: did go on a little long. Speaking of going on a little long. Let's uh, transition to our introduction of the bonus segment for Slade Plus members. (laughs) Self-knowledge. It's an important thing. We'll discuss Major League Baseball's decision to implement a no-pitch intentional walk. And we'll talk about whether that's the desperation move of a dying sport or whether I am trying to make things sound more exciting by asking a deliberately provocative question. Join Slade Plus to find out. It's just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash plus. In a desperate bid for relevance, Hang Up and Listen is transforming into an entertainment-based podcast for the next several minutes. On Sunday night at the Dolby Theater in Los Angeles at the end of a very long Oscars broadcast when surely nothing interesting could possibly happen, Faye Dunaway announced that La La Land, the expected winner, had taken... The Academy Award for Best Picture. But wait! Since since it was in the last two minutes of the 18 hour telecast, the call was automatically reviewed. Cleet Blakeman went under the hood. The NBA office in Secaucus was involved also. And wait a second. Here's one of the producers from La La Land. He's coming to the microphone. Guys,
4: guys, (laughs) I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake.
3: There's there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
0: On, this is not a joke. Come
3: this up. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. That, that leads me to think that when the uh, NFL does overturn a call on replay review, the announcement should be, this is not a joke. The, the pass wasn't complete. Um, so the explanation as of this hour, is that Warren Beatty, who is presenting the award with his Bonnie and Clyde co-star, Faye Dunaway, either took or was handed the wrong envelope, the one for Best Actress, which said, Emma Stone, La La Land. He saw La La Land. They saw La La Land. They said La La Land. Various stagehands rushed out to give the La La Landers the bad news and the Moonlighters the good news, and everyone handled themselves with fairly admirable... Uh, graciousness given the uh, circumstances. Now, there's no precedent for an Oscars presenter reading the wrong name from the wrong envelope. Nobody had ever done that in the 88 preceding shows. The closest analog is when Steve Harvey read out the wrong name at the 2015 Miss Universe pageant.
1: I have
0: to apologize. The first runner-up is Columbia. Columbia. Miss Universe 2015 is Philippines.
3: The way the Miss Universe handled it was so much better. Don't you think? Yeah.
0: Well, it was so clear to me what happened in the moment that I can't believe how much debate there was about this. Let's just walk through this real quickly. Beatty looks at the card. He knows something is wrong. He looks for another card inside the envelope. Instead of making a show-stopping joke like, unless Emma Stone is the name of a picture, I think I've got the wrong card, he keeps fumbling. Dunaway does the, oh, can you believe men are such show-offs? Oh, Warren, you're impossible. Which is what we were all thinking was going on at the right. time. <laughs> and then again, instead of saying, I think I got the wrong card, Beatty announces, and the best picture goes to, he flashes the card at Dunaway. Maybe he's looking for some backup, right? Like she's going to say what something's I wrong
3: here. That's what I but thought. But she
0: has no clue what Beatty's thinking. She has not been let in on the problem. She looks down, sees La La Land at the bottom of the card, and says La La Land. Because she's an actress, and if you blow a line... You just keep going. You pretend nothing's wrong.
3: Well, it's like the thing in Anchorman, right? If you put anything in front of a, uh, you know, anything on the teleprompter, they'll read it. But to sports this up a little bit, I feel like on sports TV, this would have been handled way better because we have the equipment and the technology and it's just part of the the training of a sports producer and, and sportscasters to like do replays and kind of walk through what happened. And that's what everyone wanted to know. And then the broadcast just ended and you had to like go on Twitter uh, to, to figure out what happened. I wanted the shot of like the shot clock, is the red light on? I wanted like, is it a catch or not a catch? Like that kind of grammar of like yeah. sports instant uh, replay, did the refs fuck up? That's what the Oscars really needed. And entertainment television is not equipped to provide us that mic.
4: Well, the okay. So, first I'll uh, let me D Sports for a second and say that <laughs> Stick to Sports, Mike. This is a yeah, sports ni- is the
3: sports topic.
4: You said it had never happened before, but in 1964 Sammy Davis was given the wrong card and he read the nominees for best music score. Now, uh-huh. The thing is the winner was John Addison for Tom Jones. And uh, Tom Jones wasn't even nominated for best score. So someone knew that something was wrong, and then they corrected it. And back then in 1964, it wasn't watched by a fake billion people. Do you think Faye Dunaway
3: would have read Suicide Squad if it said Suicide (laughs) Squad? This
4: is is exact. So here's here's one one sports take. Just like a shocking ending, like, say, the Super Bowl or any of the big uh, finals this year, where maybe we focus on the one or two gigantic plays, think of the confluence of events that had to have happened. Happen. Think of the, of all the wrong cards for Beatty to have gotten. <laughs> what if he had gotten any rando, you know, uh, uh mystical beasts, uh, for best, whatever he would, he would have known there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. So there's a, Quite a likelihood that the wrong card could have just been an actor or technician not in the category. Or what if—so maybe it was one of the last few ones, and the last three that won were um, Casey Affleck for actor and uh, Damien Chazelle for director. But what if he was given, say, the card for best best, uh, adapted— right right but what if he was given best adapted screenplay and that was moonlight he could have gotten it right for the wrong reasons mm. what if it said i'd love to have to know if it said casey affleck manchester by the sea if that would have been enough in other words if that would have been enough for him to set off the alarm bell so he didn't uh he didn't go through with it in other words the fact that the screwed up card was the thing that was a one to six odds on favorite an 84 percent odds on favorite to win had and it was so random that it was that one because most of the awards given weren't that so that is an analogy to sports but the biggest thing that i was thinking of josh was exactly what you were saying not only the grammar of maybe it's true maybe it's not i mean i understand why there is none because sports are based on uncertainty and that's the tension and the oscars actually are known so it would almost be like Um, The opposite, we could say, why don't sports care what a panel of uh, critics say about who's going to win the game? Because one is based on the unknowns, the other based on the known. But I was so frustrated with the entertainment media. Uh, right afterwards, there was uh, my local ABC News that just didn't give me any answers. And then there was E! News, which was shameful. It just went with its regular programming of talking about the dresses and didn't dig into anything. And on Twitter, I was f- trying desperately to get the answers. And you know that as much as we decry sports media, they'd be digging for answers.
0: Yeah, I mean, the analogies were flying You know, the sports analogies were, were, were plentiful on Twitter. And I'm not sure what the best one was here. Um, you know, who's who in, in this scenario? You know, are, is Price Waterhouse the refs in New York who, instead of watching what's going on, they're eating donuts or, you know, looking at last week's episode of Nashville? Um, who's who here? Because, The fuck-up took so long to be corrected. I mean, those La La Land people were on stage. Three of them went to the mic. I mean, did nobody have the ability to rush out there and call time out, send this to the replay booth, put a halt to the proceedings? So we can figure out what the hell was going on here.
3: Do you think they're going to have Miss Columbia do best picture next year? That would be a good. That would be good. That so would be a good. Which analogies uh,
0: work best, though, as, as a sports comparison? I mean, one that I thought was pretty good was the U.S. versus Russia versus the Soviet Union, rather, at the 1972 Olympics, where bad call costs the U.S., the medal, the gold medal. Well, walk so walk walk through in
3: more detail. <laughs> Ryan, like what Ryan happened there.
4: Gosling doesn't get pickpocketed at the end, like <laughs> Hank I. So does.
3: what? So what happened in that game was that the U.S. won. The game was over two different times, and the refs huddled and gave the Soviet Union the ball back. And on the second restart of the game, uh, they made the winning basket. Not exactly uh, the best analogy, because even though the refs interceded and changed the outcome in some sense, the Soviets, after uh, you know, the refs stepped in, they still had to make the winning play. So it wasn't like the refs like just stepped in and said, actually, the Soviet Union won the game. Everybody leave now. Goodbye. Right. So a couple other parallels here. Last year, actually, South Carolina was called by the NCAA and told that they were gonna make the NCAA. T- basketball this tournament is a better
0: analogy because this is a determined outcome
3: right and so they got the call um they were told you know we're you're gonna be in the tournament hooray and then 10 minutes later someone called back and was like actually we got that wrong uh vanderbilt is in you're out sorry our bad but i don't think it was actually announced on television that they were going to get in so this was their kind of like private sadness and shame The best example that I can think of is an LSU football game from 2010, perhaps just because I'm an LSU football completist, but I think this is actually the best example. So LSU's down 14 to 10 at the very end of the game. They're at the goal line and in very less miles-ish fashion. They're like completely flustered and have no idea what's going on. The clock is running. It's down to like three, two, one second. They snap the ball. It like goes crazily awry. And the Tennessee players rush onto the field. The game is over. They're like going into the middle to shake hands. You know, Tennessee is celebrating. LSU player spikes his helmet dejectedly. Then like literally a couple minutes later, and the broadcast has no idea what's going on, the ref just goes to the middle of the field, gets on the microphone, and says that Tennessee had too many men on the field. And so they clear the whole field. They redo the whole play. LSU runs another play, scores a touchdown, and wins the game. Uh, pretty good comparison.
4: Well, I think that it's a lot like – and the difference is the determined outcome versus versus not. But I think it brings to mind a lot of sports events where – they the participants will do anything to lie to help their cause. So they'll signal no, no, no catch when they knew the opposite uh, team actually got the catch or they'll, you know, do the juggling motion. They just there's just this culture of, uh, you know, always trying to argue uh, the last play. Whereas you have this guy, Jordan Horowitz, who lost and couldn't be more gracious. In fact, when you were talking about the refs coming out from under the hood and making an announcement, they should just hire Jordan Horowitz to break it to the crowd every time. And the other thing I would say is, the other analogy to sports is, just like with uh, a lot of what we're talking about is, did the replay go this way or that? So let's talk about, you know, the NFL films tape that eventually shows the right thing, or the great cameraman in the moment. The guy, whoever it was, so Warren Beatty holds up, actually it was Horowitz and Beatty at different times, but they hold up the card that actually says... Moonlight's the winner. And that is perfectly shot and framed and in focus. And have you ever watched these late night shows where one of the hosts <laughs> holds up a little card and they could never get the camera right? In fact, it was so good that that might give rise to the conspiracy theory. Because he holds up this white card and boom, it is perfectly in focus. Like, uh, that should be the next uh, Oscar winner for Best Cinematography.
3: So remember the Fenwick versus Plainfield North mm-hmm. game that we Talked about uh, on a Slate Plus segment Mm -hmm. a couple months ago. That was the game where uh, Fenwick was leading, threw the ball away with, like, no time left on the clock. And the refs called intentional grounding, which was a bad call. Like, the rule book says that should not have been the call. Time was up. Fenwick should have won the game. The refs screwed up, gave the ball to Plainfield North, and Plainfield North won the game. And there's all this talk of, like, you know, Plainfield North should have just— Given Fenwick the victory, the like high school association should have given Fenwick the victory because they were the rightful right. winner. Um, I don't think that there is a plausible scenario in which Jordan Horowitz or any of the, the La La Land people would have been like, you know what? They said our name. So like we won, you know, that. Well, maybe the, if it was hacked, It's not Ridge reviewable. It's not reviewable. The game is over. This is not a reviewable <laughs> right. call.
0: The, I think the here's a I think the best sports analogy would be, and this has happened because I just googled it, where a boxing referee holds up the wrong <laughs> hand, lifts That's good. the arm That's good. of the loser instead of the arm of the winner. That's good. And there are definitely examples of that happening.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For six seasons, Shaquille O'Neal has done a segment on his TNT NBA show called Shacked in a Fool in which he and his co-hosts make fun of recent NBA bloopers. And for six seasons, a target of those bloopers has been center JaVale McGee, who has blooped for the Wizards, the Nuggets, the Sixers, and his current team, the Warriors. I think he also blooped for the Mavericks for a period. He did, yeah. Shaq he blundered has,
4: for the Mavericks.
3: He blundered, he bloopered, he blublooped. He, he Blooped. <laughs> Shaq has trolled McGee for blown dunks, air balls, clumsy falls, forgetting to take his sweats off before entering the game, and other pratfalls. Here is a montage of a few Shaqton Fool JaVale McGee segments.
2: Two. A frequent nominee in Shaq and the Fool, here's three you. boneheaded <laughs> plays <laughs> by my boy, JaVale McGee.
3: He's a
0: regular on Shaq and the Fool. <laughs> no. No, everybody said Javel Ball,
2: Javel Ball, oh,
0: Ball.
2: Every mistake he makes, he will be on Thank the Thank you, show. Kenny. You can't talk bad he about it. just us. missed right. the shot. No, I no, don't, don't care. No.
1: You miss it's it. personal. That's right. Tell
3: them, oh, so McGee has been unhappy with the treatment at uh, the hands of Shaquille O'Neal, the rather large hands of Shaquille O'Neal. Um, in 2013, he was invited on Inside the NBA for an interview where everyone was kind of having a laugh about his frequent presence on Shaq and the Fool, everyone except JaVale McGee. Let's uh listen to how that went.
2: Well well Javel with that being said, which part of Shaq and the Fool do you like? Is it the Duncan? Is it the block shots? What is it that you like about Shaq and the Fool?
1: I don't watch Shaq and the Coon. I mean Shaq and the Fool.
2: <laughs> Shaq <laughs> and the Coon. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh my god, it is extremely awkward television. Uh, this season Shaq escalated the feud. He has trolled McGee in at least six episodes. And there was also a recent incredibly strange compilation uh, where McGee was compared to the Marvel character, Dr. Strange. It's like a little
0: short film. (laughs) (laughs) He was not nominated for an Academy Award, however. (laughs) The
3: winner of Best Picture is. uh, So McGee finally had enough. A Twitter war ensued. Kevin Durant uh, defended him. Uh, The Warriors asked the NBA to do something. JaVale McGee's mother has asked the NBA to step in. Um, Great player, s- by the way. Penny McGee. Better than yeah. Yeah. WNBA star. There might be a detente here, but it seems like everyone is still really mad at everyone. So the larger question here is what's acceptable when you're critiquing, and this isn't really critique, when you're making fun of a public figure, a sports star, or at least someone who has had some star like moments in his NBA career. He's had
0: a long NBA career, he's 29 years old. He's made a lot of money. He continues to play. He's playing a a fairly important role on the Warriors as a as a as a player off the bench. Um you know, where does it go too far? It's too far. Shaq's bullying this guy. I mean, Shaq is picking on him incessantly. I mean, it's one thing all athletes understand. <laughs> you, said,
3: you said, where is it going too far? And you said, it's going too far. You did not answer the question, question of, of where, where, it's, going where it's going too
2: far.
0: The repetition of the mockery is what has gone too
3: far. Um, so you don't have an issue with the concept of Shaq and a Fool with – collecting nba bloopers and like laughing when guys throw the ball out of
0: bounds or like miss dunks and stuff no that is a high art of sports television i mean what's different here is that it's being delivered by a a hall of famer um who has himself airballed a lot of free throws during his career so i think yeah if it's one off sure every athlete knows that they're going to screw up usually the athlete themselves himself will laugh at the Pratt Fall, <laughs> I threw the ball into the stands. Ha ha ha! Nobody gets too worked up about it. All those the reaction shots of players on the bench when an athlete blows a dunker—fantastic. Um, what happened here? I think Jesse Washington on the undefeated did a good analysis of what happened here, which is that this is like trash talk on the playground that just has gone too far. I mean, the way he said- It's funny, right? I can tell it's not funny. Right. It's like a guy in a pickup game talking so much junk that an opponent gets a gun from his car and the whole park runs for their lives. And I think that's a
4: pretty good analogy (laughs) of what Shaq has done. But it's more like the uh, player who came back and is on a college scholarship is picking on a dude from the JV. Like, I know that uh, it's Shaq's status, even though he is a 5% worse free throw shooter in his career than JaVale McGee. But it's Shaq's status. And plus the fact that Shaq rhymes with shacting so seamlessly that makes these (laughs) actions uh, that makes these actions so shactionable. Um, I think that JaVale McGee, it, it's all on him. He could either, you know, comport himself better. And you guys know when he was with the Wizards, he just had so many boneheaded plays. Yeah. So maybe, the, now, maybe now that he's 29, he has matured. But once the, once the ball gets rolling and once you get to find, just as Dan Quayle with the uh, potato and the Murphy Brown speech. I mean, that's, that's who you are. And it's hard to shake that. And the only way to shake that is probably to either do this, go all go full crybaby on uh, Shaq, or to just laugh it off. And I could understand why it would get under your skin. And yet at the same time, JaVel clearly doesn't have the Shaq type skills to turn it around
0: on Shaq, which is what they want. There no, is a and there and is the,
4: a there is a bullying aspect to it. I give I give you that
0: totally. And but McGee's responses most recently have been terrible. I mean, on Twitter, you know, he tweeted, I mean, hom- get
3: my nuts out of your mouth. Basically, EAD, a.k.a. Yeah. Yeah. Eat a dick. There you go. Yeah. Um, to be clear, the get my nuts out of your mouth was with a peanut, peanut emoji. emoji yeah. And also he put an apostrophe after the emoji and before the S, which is poor grammar. That's kind of my main mm-hmm. issue with this feud. Um, wasted but, character. <laughs> wasted apostrophe. And then Shaq responded to that with, I'll smack the shit out of your bum ass. He called McGee stupid and dumb. I'm reading from the undefeated story. And he also like photoshopped uh, McGee onto a homeless person. Which is funny. Things uh, really things funny. escalated quickly. Yes, they did. But for all these guys hiring
4: consultants to tell them that they're a brand and here's the special kind of water that they should endorse, can't they just get someone halfway decent to come up with something halfway funny and turn this into a marketing opportunity? Like if he got into a fun Twitter spat with Shaq... That would help the JaVale McGee brand exponentially, such that there is a JaVale McGee brand that's not screwing up. But I could still you could still see a series of commercials where a hapless JaVale McGee does something stupid and then Shaq just shakes his head and eventually they go to uh, Ruby Tuesdays or whatever.
0: All right, you guys could take that for free. Yeah, I but think, if if yeah. <laughs> ja- if Javale McGee were averaging twenty and ten, okay. But Javale McGee has had a a you know a middling NBA career. He's been on but like people five love teams. That guy, we elect that guy to I, the All Star team. We're ready to embrace that I, guy.
3: I have to step in here because this is actually a, a difficult case for me because Javale McGee is uniquely blooper-ridden. Like, his career... <laughs> is blooper-ready. <laughs> his career is just so remarkable in its ability to generate bloopers. And I understand what you're saying when you're, like, the repetition of it makes it seem like bullying, but it's like when you're, you know, critiquing, you know, a writer who, like, overuses, like, you know, tooth references or something, Rick Riley... The fact that he just keeps fucking up over and over and over again. There is the one when he was with the Nuggets where he's leading the fast break and it and he falls down. And as he's falling down, he like throws an attempted alley oop, but it actually goes 40 feet in the air. And then also after he falls, he runs into his point guard, Ty Lawson, and just knocks him over like a bowling pin. I think that is the great one of the greatest bloopers. In sports history.
0: So you're saying that it would be journalistic malpractice to not include yes. JaVale McGee on Shacked and a Fool when JaVale McGee deserves to be on Shacked and a Fool. Not only that, I feel
3: like the fact that he kind of became the mascot for this segment. If you're gonna do this segment where you're highlighting bloopers, he is the person who embodies it. Like he is he is the dude. And it's unusual in the NBA. Marcus Smart is another person who's on Shacked and a Fool a lot um, because he flops like ridiculously. He makes these absurd uh, faces. He like did this thing where he like jumped like a marlin out of water, um, you know, claiming that somebody had like elbowed him when he was blocking out. So there are other recurring characters. It's not just Javale McGee, um, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, I I do think that like the rhetoric around it and the doctor strange thing was really bad and dumb. Mm -hmm. But the reason that people like, and I like the inside the NBA show on TNT is that they're not as stage managed. They, these are like the value proposition of these studio shows is like, these are like real athletes and they talk like real athletes talk, not just like a man. And it's actually true on inside the NBA. Like they're mean to, Players and they're not just like oh all the players are great and all the coaches are great
0: right and I think but what's the, what's missing in that analysis is that Javale McGee's career has probably made Javale McGee a little sensitive and the, definitely true right. he is extremely so, sensitive so and, the, and rightly so right so the the rea- the best reaction that Javale McGee could and I think you always have to say both names when you're talking about Javale McGee. <laughs> yeah, right. Javale McGee is that he should have assembled to have it the ready gifts of Shaq airballing a free throw or blowing a dunk or throwing a bad pass or falling down on his 350-pound ass. But he didn't have the ability to do that because it's really bothering him. Or just a nonstop
4: screening of Kazam. That would do it, too. That would do it, too. Okay, him so let's... with the foo schnickens.
3: But think about this. Like, let's say a, a film director or um, a writer just comes out with an incredibly bad like work, a movie or book. And all of the M.
4: Night Shyamalan.
3: All of the reviewers all of the reviewers say that it's horrible. Ishtar. And just like recount every stupid thing in the movie. Like I just the kind of one of the meanest things I ever wrote was the review of one of those like Friedberg and Seltzer parody movies, like Meet the Spartans. It was just awful. It was like a, a crime against cinema. And I just made fun of it and people like l- laughed cuz it was funny to like make make fun of these people who just made this awful movie like i'm sure that they got upset by it i bet their mom was really w- would have been upset about it if she saw it too but the fact that the person you're critiquing gets upset or the fact that their mother gets upset and the fact that they're like sensitive about it does that mean that it was wrong to do the critique
4: Well, no, there are a few factors. It's wrong to do a right critique or a wrong critique can both inspire people to get upset. The upsettedness is not perhaps a reflection on the critique. I mean, there are a couple things. The Bullying aspect, the fact that they created this, Shaq and the Fool isn't only about Javel but Javel greatly informed Shaq and in the Fool. In fact, Javel might have contributed more to the economy through the Shaq <laughs> and the Fool segments than anything he's done on the uh, court in the NBA. I do think that, that the idea, if you could laugh it off, is goes to making the MZ, NBA a more whimsical place. And most bloopers, I mean, when I first started watching bloopers, they were baseball bloopers. And maybe Jose Canseco got mad when the ball got off, went off his head. But I think most baseball players know that, you know, bloopers are here to kind of codify the game as a certain thing in our minds, right? The, the game is fun. We talk about this all the time. The NFL is this uh, warrior uh, glorious uh, mythology. and the, And Major League Baseball is supposedly fun and hot feet but what's the nba so i think the the, the tnt studio show if as much as anything else, kind of defines the NBA is this fun place, a place with personality, a place where people maybe go too far, a place where you get to know the players because you see the players. So this is you know a little bit of excess, but in general the segment's good. And what are we going to have? Not right. no clips of Jose Canseco's head. No clips. <laughs> How are we going to make the next you know no clips of uh, no uh, clips of, of the a tiger hitting an outfielder? Like yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. A guy being a guy being, ma- <laughs> a guy being mauled by a tiger. A car hitting a shortstop. Uh, what, what's the next walk of life video going to rely on if we stamp <laughs> this out? We this is serious issues.
0: Look, the NFL produced football follies in the 1960s and 70s. It's not like the genre, there's anything wrong with the genre. Like I said before, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. The only problem here is that it got super personal. And that he was attacking this man's character, and the man was not happy with that.
3: Right. I mean, I don't it's think so
0: that
4: blowing alley oops is your character. <laughs> it's just dumb shit he does on a.
0: Basketball yeah, but it's court. also what they kept saying while they were running the clips of him blowing the alley oops, ball
3: and whatnot. I mean, John Ronson did the book on public shaming, and where I agree with him is that it's bad to publicly shame someone like Justine Sacco, the woman who made the like really bad tweet who's not a public figure, you know, when she was on the airplane and tweeted about Africa and AIDS and it was, you know, a very bad tweet, but she didn't deserve the like, you know, incredible amount of opprobrium. Where I don't agree with Ronson is like it's wrong to shame someone like Joan O'Leary who's just committed ex- extreme and egregious journalistic malpractice and Joan O'Leary is a public figure. And deserved what he had coming to him, I think. So JaVale McGee is a public figure in my view. And I don't think that the like Dr. Strange thing was like appropriate or correct. And I do think everybody kind of took it too far. But I think my line for like when it went over the line is like a bit further away than than yours is.
4: I think that, well, the analogy, though, is what about Milo and Leslie Jones? He was saying something similar to the idea that these Hollywood stars are so are so fragile in their home. I mean, it's a Constated. bullshit argument. but yeah. No, I think we all agree that if public figures bear some scrutiny. But Leslie Jones deserved none of it. JaVale attempting to dunk from the foul line and missing badly. I, I got to see that. If
0: I hadn't <laughs> seen that, my life
3: would be worse. That's a great point. <laughs> uh, that was a long discussion, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. At this time last year, Leicester City was at the top of the Premier League standings, ahead of traditional English powers like Tottenham, Arsenal, Man City, Manchester United, Liverpool, and Chelsea. Leicester, led by its Italian manager Claudio Ranieri, striker Jamie Vardy, winger Rian Mares, and midfielder N'Golo Conte would improbably hold on to win the title, probably the most unlikely championship in the history of top-tier professional sports. Now, a year later, the top of the Premier League standings reads like a list of the richest teams in pro soccer. Chelsea, Tottenham, Man City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Man United. In 18th place, third from the bottom with just 21 points, that's just two points ahead of last place, is Leicester City. Given that the bottom three teams in the Premier League are relegated, dropped down to the second-tier Football League Championship. Leicester is in real danger of taking the express elevator from the penthouse to the outhouse. Last week, Leicester fired its hero coach, Mr. Ranieri, in a last-ditch attempt to salvage its season and stay in the Premier League. Joining us now to discuss is Ken Early, who writes for The Irish Times and podcasts with second captains. How are things, Ken?
2: Good, Josh. How are you?
3: Doing okay. Doing better than Claudio Ranieri. And natural question here is did he bear any responsibility for lester's slide and will sackingham accomplish anything
2: well um sackingham might accomplish uh, what lester are looking for which is the kind of temporary bounce and results that will lift them out of the relegation zone so they don't get you know they don't get relegated this year which would be very expensive for the club i mean it's the question of whether he bears any responsibility, well then if you think, I think that if he bears, if you believe that he bears a lot of responsibility for the fact that they won the league in the first place, then surely he must also bear a lot of responsibility for, you know, the fact they've lost five league games in a row without scoring a goal and, uh, you know, are in the relegation zone.
0: If they were relegated, can they be the first team to do so after winning a championship in 79 years? They only lost three league games in 2016. They've lost 14 already. Clearly, there is something wrong with this picture. I mean, on the one hand, it's regression to the mean. They weren't that good last season. They strung together this remarkable. I think they've
3: regressed way past the mean. Well,
0: this is where the mean was two seasons ago, right, Ken? I mean, this is not. This would not be an unusual place for Leicester City to find itself at this stage in a season. So, is it regression to the mean? How much have the players just sucked this year. Vardy and Mares look indifferent. Their defense is, has been porous. I mean, this is more than Claudio Ranieri. And there's also the coming off of the high of winning the championship. And that clearly must have, have had some effect.
2: Well, there is one, one obvious reason, one kind of banal explanation, which is that uh, last season, Leicester had N'Golo Kante in the middle of their midfield. Chelsea now have N'Golo Kante. And as usual, N'Golo Kante is at the top of the Premier League because really he's been an absolutely phenomenal player uh, since, he, since he arrived in the summer of 2015. I mean, he's a guy who uh, has apparently limitless energy, limitless. Uh, he's just got an incredible game intelligence in terms of always turning up at the right place to nick the ball, to start an attack. Uh, just a fantastic player to have. Leicester lost him. And that was always going to hurt them. But I actually think the main problem that they're having, um, aside from from the obvious one of no no longer having Kante, is that everybody else has caught up with what Leicester are trying to do to them. Uh, All the the opponents, I think, have adapted to playing against Leicester in a way that um, it took a long time to start happening. But I guess it's, it is it is naturally the case that sort of the harder or the more pro, more high-profile the game, the more serious everybody is about opposition research. And Leicester, I guess, would have been, you know, not exactly, I'm not suggesting they're cannon fodder or viewed that way, but people took a long time to start taking them seriously as, you know, a, a team that could actually win the league. You know, I think that they benefited from the fact that everybody – most of the opponents for most of the season sort of turned up and thought, yeah, we'll play our usual game against Leicester and win. Whereas really, since they've won the title, everybody said, okay, Leicester are a team you really need to study carefully and take seriously. And Leicester are a very simple team in a lot of ways. You know, their, their tactical uh, plan is simple. They have a few very obvious strengths. Take care of those strengths and, you know, it's, it's suddenly a more difficult game for Leicester. And I think that just happened across the league. Everybody adapted to them. Uh, And they, weakened as they were by the loss of a a key player, were unable to find uh, an answer now to to the different problems other teams were posing them.
4: I have a question about the fans. I I take it to be, but you you are closer, that overall in Britain, you know, I, I heard the story on the BBC and not even BBC Sport, it's portrayed as kind of sad, oh, Uh, what a glorious run this was, and now the manager is being thrown to the Wolves, uh, if not Wolverhampton. But uh, among the Leicester fans, they want it because they fear relegation matters to them, and they're mostly happy. They're appreciative of what he did, but they're happy to, you know, have, uh, they perceive a greater chance to stay in the top division.
2: Well, I'd say probably some of them feel a bit guilty. I mean, Claudio Ranieri is a lovely man. He's a charming... Individual, you know, he's the kind of guy everybody likes, um, yeah. apart from maybe some of his players um, who, and <laughs> who, and maybe his assistant. Um, so I'm sure that obviously sacking Ranieri in these circumstances is bad karma. Um, for, for Leicester, you know, and if and, and and you know, there was all of this sort of talk. Well, Leicester last season were everyone's second favorite team, and now everybody wants Leicester to go down because they've committed a crime against football. You know, like Macbeth when when he when he uh assassinates King Duncan in his sleep, this is uh this is sort of the way the Ranieri thing was being looked at. You know, have you no sense of decency, Leicester? All this kind of stuff, but you know, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if, if too many of the fans would actually be bothered by that. I mean. In, the sen- in, in one sense, the, the achievement, the winning of the title is immortal. It's, it's sort of everything that's happened since then has kind of almost been irrelevant anyway. It's like the story sort of ended when they lifted the, the trophy. And arguably, Ranieri would have been best advised to retire then in, in, in glory, or no, not retire, but to leave. I mean, it's what Jose Mourinho would have done. You know, whenever he's won the Champions League at a club, he's, it's been his last match for that club. You know, once you've climbed the mountain, you know, what are you going to do, climb the mountain again, you know, or, or, or move on?
0: The real issue here for Leicester, as with every other team near the bottom of the Premier League table, including Swansea City, which sacked the American coach Bob Bradley after just a few weeks, is that the stakes in getting relegated are enormous. Television revenue in the Premier League is about $200 million a year compared to about $5 million in the second-tier championship. So the panic is understandable, but, you, again, like you said, the, the, the glory and the, the sheer remarkableness of winning the, the premiership almost outweighs that. But if you're the owners, you don't want to risk the you know, falling off of the gravy train that staying in the premiership and having this title under your belt offered.
2: No, uh, you, you certainly don't. I mean, it's, it's, how, it's, it's the difference between, you know, in terms of how you look at football, whether depending on whether you own or work for a club and how you might look at it if you were a supporter of that club. You know, various pundits and so on were talking about. I mean, Jamie Carriger, one of the kind of leading pundits at the moment and a former player with Liverpool who never actually managed to win the Premier League in a very long career. Um, was saying, of course, I would have accepted that. You know, of course, you know, you told me, you offered me the Premier League and tell me I'm getting relegated uh, the next year. Absolutely, I'm going for that. But realistically, if you work for that club, you don't want it going down because you're probably going to lose your job. Um, in, in terms of what would happen to Leicester if they did get relegated, one thing to keep in mind is that when you get relegated from the Premier League, you've got these uh, parachute payments, uh, because they, they noticed uh, a while ago that essentially it was it was getting relegated it was so traumatic on the financial level for a club. You know, you were getting these meltdowns. Uh, and they needed to do something to sort of cushion the blow to allow the clubs to transition to a sort of more affordable model once they weren't in the Premier League anymore. So the the parachute payments um, are are very substantial. I mean, what I'm saying is that if Leicester was to get re- if Leicester were to get relegated, I mean, the Championship, they would be you know the richest club in the Championship and would be in pole position to get promoted immediately.
4: So right now, Leicester's odds of re, uh, relegation are you know, 15 to 8, 7 to 4, about 35%. What do you think?
2: The thing about relegation this year is it's very, very competitive. I mean, Josh was saying in the beginning about the uh, top uh, the top six being, you know, you know, like a list of the world's richest clubs, uh, and they have been very dominant in the league this season. So there are quite a lot of teams who have been just taking such a beating all season uh, who are down? I think there's, <clears throat> there's still six or seven clubs who who could be relegated, who are just within a couple of points of that zone. And really, it could be any one of those. You know, a, a club at the, at the bottom of the table is able to do what Leicester did a couple of years ago and put together a really unexpected run of wins. It could be Leicester who did that. It could be Swansea. It could be, you know, we don't know. All of them have, have the potential to play well. Even the clubs at the bottom of the league have have good players. That's a, that's a function of the. The wealth of the Premier League at the moment—you know—you get really top international players playing for what people what sound like poor, you know, sound sound like uh, the idea of you know top internationals playing for clubs like Swansea City or Burnley. Uh, Fifteen years ago, would have would have shocked everybody, but that's that's a the reality. These clubs are are rich now. So, what I'm saying is, is I can't tell you. <laughs> there are too many teams. The, the relegation picture is too. Uh, it's too competitive. I would say Leicester probably are, uh, they shouldn't go down. They are a better team than most of the other teams down there, but the way things have gone for them, it could easily happen.
3: And let's end by noting that another thing that's still in play is that Leicester could win the Champions League. They're still alive. They're in (laughs) the last 16. They're um, playing uh, a two-legged match against Sevilla. They lost the first leg uh, two to one, but they scored an away goal. And so it's, certainly realistic that they would advance out of that and make the final eight of the champions league.
2: Um, I don't know how realistic it is. <laughs> I <laughs> more realistic I than know.
3: winning last year's title, my friend.
2: Yeah, oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is more realistic. I mean, even you could argue, I mean, here they here. They're in the second round of the champions league. The odds on the winning it, I'm sure are shorter than 5,000 to one. Um, But no, I think they're going to go out to Sevilla. Sevilla, They they were a bit unlucky with the draw. Sevilla are a really good team. Sevilla really wiped the floor with Leicester in the first leg as well. Only won 2-1, so they were a bit maybe cheated by the margin of victory. Um, I would expect them to put Leicester away in the second leg, but you know… Um, their form form has been better in the Champions League all season, I and it's not just on a collective level, but on an individual level I mean, Riyad Mahrez has played much better in the Champions League than in the Premier League you could probably say that about a couple of their players but uh, I think once again, the odds are against Leicester City
3: Ken Early writes for the Irish Times and he podcasts with second captains, Ken, thank you very much for being with us Thanks for having me
1: on
3: Now it is time for Afterballs, and as we uh, typically do at this stage of the show, we're going to go into some Oscars uh, trivia. Mike, uh, what can you tell us about uh, the Academy Awards back, uh, back in the day?
4: Back in 1964, let's go back. Sammy Davis hol- holding the envelope, confusingly re- uh, announces John Addison wins for Tom Jones. Tom Jones, one of, the, one of the few straight ahead comedies to win Best Picture, but that wasn't the correct winner for Best Score. The correct winner was Andre Previn, great composer, for Irma La Deuce. I say we do our Irma La Deuce's. Shirley MacLaine was in that. So was, She was on the show last that. night. Yeah, it was uh, an apartment redux
3: because so yeah. was
4: uh, Jack Lemmon.
3: And Billy Wilder, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, what is your Irma Le deuce?
4: Well, I've, been, I've not watched a complete NBA game all season, except I have. It happened to coincide with the Academy <laughs> Awards.
3: It was on NBC. Wait a second. Wait a second. We got to redo the segment. I have yeah. watched a complete NBA game. That would be one way to say it. <laughs> so what
4: was my first complete NBA game? It was the 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 team I'm most compelled by. Josh, your New Orleans Pelicans. I wasn't hey. on the show last week to talk about it, but I'm so fascinated with how Mr. Uh, Demarcus Boogie Cousins will relate to Anthony Davis. Here's what I found about Demarcus Cousins: He's great. He's a great player. He's <laughs> also on defense. He's just not good. Lower half of the body, chest down, doesn't do much. Hands, waves the hands around, will occasionally block a shot. But this is why his bad defense hurts his overall games. Never gets himself in good position. So he'll swat at the ball, wind up hitting a guy's arm, getting a foul. Now, in last night's game, he got a... He had a foul against Stephen Adams, who's you know a giant man from the uh, antipodal region of the world, and it's very hard not to foul him. And that was a technical. But there was another foul about uh, against uh, Sabonis, where. Oh my God, the flopping from this guy. JaVel McGee, sorry. JaVel McGee, here we go. DeMarcus Cousins is a marked man. He picked up his 18th technical. I would really hate to see him be forced to sit out a game because they need all, whatever, 22 of their remaining games to gel if they're going to get in eighth place. And I think they can gel because the moments where Davis and Cousins are on the floor, sometimes when you talk about getting two big men, uh, you could say, well, I understand how they'll both do well individually. But when they're both on the floor, since they both can, go to the outside. They're great. And it's different from anything in the NBA all season. Their point guard, Drew Holiday, has regressed horribly. He was doing really well up until the trade. I don't know why the presence of this excellent low post option just makes him slip in the paint and throw away the ball. But in his first game, he had more turnovers than points. Last last night he had one more point than turnovers by the way turnovers can lead to twos or threes so like the more turnover you gotta have a lot more points than turnovers so holiday's awful but i'm just compelled to watch this team in a way i haven't for any other team this year i kind of monitored golden state i figured they'd be good i didn't watch a whole game And by the time I said, oh, maybe I should, they were already, you know, 13 games over 500. So they're a great team. And then, you know, what are the other intriguing teams? Like Washington is better than expected. I'm not going to invest in a whole Wizards game. I have invested in the Pelicans. I want the Pelicans to make the playoffs and do something.
0: Drew Holiday, his wife had brain surgery in November, Mike. Give him a break.
4: Oh, come on. But he was doing, oh, come on. That's that's terrible. And and I support her. But he was doing well, even in February before the trade. I don't
3: understand. Stefan, what is your Irma LaDuce?
0: And a few weeks back, uh, MLB's official historian, John Thorne, retweeted a curious image, a hand-drawn baseball card of William Edward White. I first wrote about White for the Wall Street Journal in 2004 and later for Slate. Uh, He was born to a Georgia businessman and one of his slaves and played in a single major league game for the Providence Grays in 1879 while he was a student at Brown. Though no one knew it at the time, no one really knew it until I followed baseball historian Peter Morris on a road trip to try to unlock White's past for that journal story – That made White the first black player in big league history. The drawing of William White was posted on the Twitter account of Gummy Arts, which describes itself as on a mission to draw all the greatest baseball players outside the Hall of Fame. I got in touch with the artist. He's Mike Norin. He's 42, grew up outside of Chicago, lives a few blocks from Wrigley Field now. He edits health management textbooks for a living and draws baseball cards by night for fun. About a year ago, Mike started a Tumblr account with the brilliant name Cecil Cooperstown, where he posts recreations of actual baseball cards or imagined cards of players like White and non-players like labor leader Marvin Miller, who aren't in the Hall of Fame. On players' birthdays, he'll tweet their cards and tag the player, a handful of them. Carrie Wood, Jesse Barfield, Steve Garvey, Dontrell Willis have retweeted or sent compliments. Last fall, Mike drew the current Cubs in the style of T206 tobacco cards from a century ago and he included one of Theo Epstein on a cell phone. The drawings are bright, stylized, cartoonish. There's a hint of South Park in the faces and expressions. I can totally see an animated series starring Mike's versions of, I think these would be the stars, Ron Kittle, Deion Sanders, Dave Magadin, Manny Sanguian, Fred Merkel, Al Raboski, and Oil Can Boyd with Don Zimmer as the manager. It's a parade of baseball history, players not quite great, and often forgotten, but idolized by someone, sometime. Any parade
3: that involves Dave Magadan is a parade I'm going to be in the front row for. Absolutely.
0: On Sunday night, Mike posted his latest edition, infielder Cookie Rojas, with 1970s mutton chops, oversized glasses, and a red donut on his bat. In honor of the Oscars, he reposted a card that I'm pretty sure I owned, the 1976 Oscar Gamble Tops gigantic afro extending from one side of the card to the other. His cap airbrushed with a Yankees logo after his trade from the Indians. And the cap, by the way, looks about the size of like an ice cream cup helmet on a real head when Gamble wore his helmet. And it had the faux headline Yankees take a gamble on Oscar. On Monday morning, Mike added Harry Stovey, the first major leaguer to hit 100 home runs from an old Judge cigarette factory card from 1888. Mike doesn't have any formal art training. He just likes to draw. He tries to draw one card a day. He's done almost 500 so far. The William White card happened because Mike tweeted out his card of Moses Fleetwood Walker for Black History Month and said that Walker was the first black player in the majors, which prompted John Thorne to send him a post that he had done about William White. When I asked to buy the William White card, Mike refused payment, He drew two more and sent one to me and one to Peter Morris using a photo of the 1879 Brown team. Mike gave White an ambiguous skin tone and a bat of the same color with a swirling black and white Van Gogh Starry Night background. The card is in a little plastic frame on my desk now. It reminds me that baseball can be playful and off kilter and fun and historically meaningful. Too. So go check out Mike's work. We'll post links to his Tumblr accounts. You should follow him on Twitter at GummyArts. It'll make your feed a happier place at least once a day. Josh, what's your Irma Laduce? I want to know who the
3: youngest player is to dunk a basketball, because that's just a thing that we should know. So when you Google this, you get into like my least favorite corner of the internet. Which is the like Yahoo Answers slash Quora um, pages where people don't actually know the answer to the question, <laughs> but they'll just say like, "I bet it's Will Chamberlain,"
4: Uploaded like, six times. <laughs> just, don't you find Quora a lot better than Yahoo?
3: Oh, it's way better. But um, this particular answer was extremely bad and unsatisfying. Here's my plea to people on the internet: if you don't know the answer, just don't answer. Don't just put your conjecture. I need to know who the youngest person was <laughs> to dunk a basketball. Not what your guess is. So if you look on YouTube, there are all these videos where it's like ten-year-old dunks, and it's just like some like uh, little jerk on, on a, a chair or something basketball net. Yeah, with their fancy trick editing. But I did find a video um, that's Adrian Moore, eleven-year-old dunks, and this was written up by a lot of places in 2010. The Huffington Post did it. Yahoo covered it. Deadspin covered it. The Huffington Post story reads, Adrian Moore, an 11-year-old middle school student in Conway, Arkansas, has become a basketball phenom and is already gaining collegiate attention. The seventh grader has been ranked as a top prospect in the class of 2016. That was extremely far away and uh, laughable in 2010, class of 2016. And in this video, he's shown throwing down some incredible dunks. The Deadspin headline, here's an 11-year-old dunking, and yes, That's a regulation rim. Back then, he was known as the 2016 phenom because, again, he was in the class of 2016. That means uh, using some of uh, my math skills, he'd be like around uh, 18 today, something like that. Um, Fox 16 in Conway, Arkansas uh, reported he has big time hoop dreams. This was last year. He achieved one uh, when he signed to play basketball at the University of Texas at El Paso. So Adrian Moore has continued uh, his career. His high school team was known as the Charging Wildcats, said in that uh, Fox 16 article that he's been able to dunk since the sixth grade. He has high expectations for his future as a minor. Me going to El Paso, I feel like I can go in there and make some noise and plan on going out there and just doing what I can. And I don't necessarily have to be the man, a humble superstar who dunked at the age of 11. So I looked up his bio um, at UTEP. Rated a four-star recruit, f- number 46 player in the country, led North Little Rock High School to back-to-back 7A championships in 2014, 2014 2015, three-time All-State, uh, played for the Dunk Dog Elite AAU team. So did I. Full full name is Adrian Rashad Moore, blah, blah, blah. Born uh, October 11th, 1996. <gasps> Wait a second. October 11th, 1996. Hmm. These stories came out in December, 2010. Yahoo Answers reports the 2010 minus 1996 is 14. Hold the phone, uh, Fatsus. Then I go back and look at the Deadspin comments. We were like, "This guy is in seventh grade. You're not 11 years old when you're in seventh grade." But I haven't seen anybody like definitively debunk the idea that this guy, this 11 year old, as we call it in this realm, dunk. to dunk. <laughs> I am dedunking the shit out of Adrian Moore. <laughs> I, I went in. You're uh, the dedunked dog. I looked up his voter registration in Arkansas, or there is a voter registration for someone by that name in Arkansas that lists his date of birth as October 1996. Dude was not 11 years old in 2010. I can say with uh, a good amount of confidence. Long form birth certificate, <laughs> Josh. December 3rd, 2016, the website Minor Rush. After UTEP's latest loss at the hands of Northwestern State, head coach Tim Floyd revealed that freshman guard Adrian Moore has left the program. Did he leave the program because of a lack of playing time, as was reported at the time? Did he transfer to Butler Community College just to get an opportunity to play at a junior college? Or were people getting too close to the truth? (laughs) Did they find out he was only 15? (laughs) I will report more on this. Probably never. But I just want to know that if you're claiming that you're 11 years old and you're dunking, I will look up your voter registration. And what better place to end? We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash Listen. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com/panoply. Members Almo Beatty. And thanks for listening.